Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 129. Where should you use an ellipsis in Python? How does it behave as a placeholder in a script, project, or stub file? What are the next goals for the Faster C Python project? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We talk about a real Python article that covers when you should use an ellipsis in Python. We discuss the similarities with the pass keyword and how it's used for type hints within stub files. Christopher shares resources covering the goals of the Faster C Python project. We're on the cusp of the release of Python 3.11, but the project keeps moving forward as they look at ways to continue speeding up Python. We share several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news roundup, hosting alternatives for Python-based applications, creating custom Python strings, a discussion about aging programmers, creating a structural diff that understands syntax, and a project for refurbishing and modernizing Python code bases. This episode is sponsored by InfluxDB. InfluxDB time series platform is built to handle the massive volumes of time series data produced by sensors, apps, and systems. Are you building real-time applications? Check it out at influxdata.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. Glad to be here. We have a couple little short news items to kind of begin with. We're going to have a nice, good discussion that's uh, very uh, near and dear to our hearts, I guess. Um, <laughs> so... Our, our our old failing hearts. Spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So first, first little chunk of news is there's been a security release for Django. So four dot one dot two, four dot dot eight, and three dot two dot sixteen. It resolves a potential denial of service attack with internationalized URLs. So get your fixes out there before you end up in trouble. And then the second piece of news is a new PEP has surfaced. It's PEP 698. It's called Override Decorator for Static Typing. The idea here is to provide a decorator that is a type hint for methods in a child class that override their parents' method. If this gets accepted, tools like MyPy or your IDE will be able to warn you if there's an incompatible change between the child and parent. So say you renamed a parent's method but forgot to rename the child method that was overriding it, that would normally only ever show up at runtime when you tried to call super. Uh, with this decorator, the typing tools will be able to warn you about the mistake. So it'll be interesting to see if it gets accepted. It's funny how many little pieces of uh, typing and enhancements keep building up every release. It seems to be a common thing, yeah. yeah. We'll talk more about that next week with 3.11. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That brings us into our topics this week. And the first one was, I guess, kind of a news one, but it's a, an article written after the news kind of broke. People might be aware that Heroku has changed their pricing plan. They have had a free tier for a long time, and they're discontinuing that. Heroku, as a 
organization is owned by Salesforce. I don't know if they're pushing it one way or the other, but one of the things about that is a lot of tutorials, just even some of uh, RealPython's own tutorials have been written with the idea that, oh, you should be able just to pop that into a free tier plan. This article is addressing it. It's titled Heroku Alternatives for Python-Based Applications. It's by Nick Tomazic on testdriven.io. I think it's a really well-done survey of these things. It actually dives a little deeper into, okay, well, what is Heroku and what was its sort of specialty at first? I have liked using Heroku, especially in the tutorial space, because it didn't really require you to get too deep into the DevOps part, which is very nice. It also has a very handy integration with Git. It really leverages using Git commits, being able to kind of watch when you commit something new that it will just version and redeploy and do a lot of the sort of CICD kind of stuff for you, which is really nice. And I guess that kind of is what defines it differently. It's it's a, a PaaS, a platform as a service, versus some of the other things that are out there where you have to provision your own virtual machine, work on the networking, deal with you know all the other kinds of little things that are really not Python specific. And that's, I think, partly why a lot of tutorials use tools like it to point to. And Heroku is great. I mean, it's a great service and people should pay for, for things, but I, I totally understand tutorials not wanting to require an investment to get into it. And, uh, you know, another note, Real po Real Python is hosted on Heroku and it's done really well for us there. So one thing in this pro and con list that he starts with Heroku about, he mentions again, multiple pros that I've already listed a little bit. Its popularity is one of its pros, I guess, also and its ability to do a lot of that scaling for you, either vertically or horizontally. It is very dashboard kind of based where you have a hand on some of the controls, but a lot of it is happening for you behind the scenes, which a lot of people would prefer either way more ability to look at the status of things and understand what's happening. So I can see that as a pro and a con. And also another real pro is it comes with a very nice CLI that you can install and just do the sort of git commit kind of stuff right from your command line. Pricing is higher, partly because it is more of a platform as a service. It is a little lacking in some of the regions also. So I won't do every one of these, but I will mention that if you're looking for alternatives to it, this does a really good job of providing you pros and cons, a lot of variety, and mostly leaning toward the platform on a serve as a service kind of thing for the people that are less wanting to become a DevOps pro and more, hey, I want to host my Python project uh, or my Python-based application. So the first one that he gets into after that is DigitalOcean's app platform, which you might have heard ads for. It has a very simple free plan. I think it lets you host like three static sites, but most of the services are charged also. It has Integrated CI/CD also, which works with GitHub and GitLab. There's a service he mentions called Render, which I hadn't heard of, but it it's fairly new. It's launched in 2019. It includes uh, Postgres databases. So if you're moving from Heroku, that would be a nice familiarity you might have there. He mentions that it's really great for beginners. It does have free tier. Fly.io is another one that he mentions. And then one that is a recent sponsor of our 
show here, platform.sh, which is just known as Platform SH, is, you know, literally in their name, Platform as a Service. It is really geared for bigger organizations, in my opinion. There isn't much of a free tier at all. It does have a lot more features kind of built into it, and it has a, a lot of stuff for scaling your, your production up. They mention Google App Engine. We've done a couple tutorials on that. If you want to look at that for, you know, things on Real Python to kind of learn a little bit about, Google offers like a $300 free credit thing to get you in as a new customer. So you can kind of play around in that environment. Google and Amazon as services, I guess probably Azure would be another one. All of them, their billing is in my opinion, somewhat impenetrable. <laughs> um, there's nickel and diming for every single thing that you're kind of involved with, which can be really confusing and sometimes a little scary when you hear the horror stories of, oh, I left this instance running and this blew up or whatever. Or Usually it's the data science ones that I hear the most often where like somebody was just running massive models and got this huge bill. So those ones are a little scarier than say like a Python application that you're hosting and you're looking at like a flat certain amount per month or what have you. It's a nice survey of all these different services. He also mentions the AWS Elastic Beanstalk, which is, again, kind of an application-based type of thing. Again, kind of leaning toward the serverless thing. Microsoft Azure App Service. And then probably the oddest duck out of the whole bunch is Python Anywhere, which is a really great service for just doing really simple stuff the Django Girls tutorial that's out there uses it as a way to get going. <laughs> it's like an online integrated development environment and a web hosting thing kind of all in one. They have a very simple free hosting for one small project, and then you kind of can grow from there. But it's not as elaborate, and there's not as many choices as far as like different services and things you would tie to. And there's definitely not things like scaling. <laughs> it would be more of, hey, I want to experiment with putting my Python application up somewhere. I was surprised to see this in our list of PyCoders articles for the week and that it was like number one. So people are interested in looking at a survey like this and going through and comparing them. There's a couple other ones that are mentioned in here. One, Railway.app and Netlify, Vercel and Engine Yard, which are all ones I have heard very little about that I'd like to learn a little more about. And then I had asked you a little bit about one that you were using, and I think it kind of leaned more, you have to be a little more of a DevOps kind of person in the sense that you're setting up like a virtual machine, right? What was the one you use? Yeah, I, I frequently work with a company that's called uh, OpalStack. No affiliation, just happy with them. Yeah. If uh, anybody was, you know, remember the web faction days, also another little boutique place. It's by many of the same people. Her web faction got bought by GoDaddy. A bunch of them struck out on their own and created OpalStack. It's not quite platform as a service, which I kind of like. And, and I get the pros and cons of both. Right. You can get in and actually SSH to the box and you have full access to things. But there is also a dashboard through the web. And so for certain kinds of packages, and Django's one of them, you essentially just go in and go, I would like a new Django instance, please. And it creates all the stuff it needs to in a directory. And you essentially just overwrite the my app sample directory they give you with your Django folder and reboot and you're ready to go. Okay. 
a bit like a template system. Yeah, it's it's essentially a, a cookie cutter style mechanism uh, that that preps a bunch of things for you. So I like it personally because I find it gives me the flexibility because I'm still touching the Linux box when I need to. Okay, but uh, it's not like I'm having to set all the servers up by hand, right? So like they have a hosted Postgres instance. So for my larger clients that I'm worried about the database, I hook it up to Postgres. For smaller clients where we don't care. It stays as a SQL light file inside of the operating system, right? So it, it gives you a fair amount of choice that way. It uh, doesn't scale for you. You're essentially just getting a virtual right. instance. So uh, once you get to, uh, we have many thousands of clients per second or you know, <laughs> that kind of nonsense, then you've got to go somewhere else. Yeah. But I do a lot of work with customers who, you know, they're, they're, if they're happy, if they're getting a thousand hits a month. Right. AWS tends to be overkill for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I just did a tutorial uh, kind of review of something that's coming out soon where I I needed to walk through setting up AWS and I was mentioning this before we started. You know, I haven't played with it in I don't know, three and a half years. I just haven't needed to in this position I'm in right now. And, you know, it's it wasn't quite like riding a bike. It was like, okay, <laughs> let me get going again here and setting it up and if you're not a DevOps person, there's lots of little thorny things you got to kind of pay attention to to kind of get things right. Uh, I was able to you know, accomplish it in the afternoon and get everything all set up and run, which was great. But I can really see the advantages of these sort of platform as a service kinds of things where, hey, I can maintain being a programmer and it can you know, do a lot of the background stuff. And even just that extra step of like, hey, here's a template that has most of the things already configured as opposed to just raw configuration stuff. And even just like, you know, I had to pick, you know, which Linux box I was using, I had to update everything, install Python on it, set up my, my keys and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And, you know, practice a lot of these tools that were uh, just a slightly rusty, you know, just cause it just, you just do different things, you know, and that it's fun being a person who has to solve lots of different problems, but sometimes it's nice to focus on, different things if that's not going to be your day in and day out. So um, lots of different choices here for you to kind of look through. And I think they really have a nice spectrum <laughs> for what you might be uh, searching for. What's your first article this week? First one is called Python 3.12 Goals, Faster Python Ideas. So I know we're right on the crux of 3.11 being released. So I'm just going to skip that all together. And we're going to start talking about 3.12 <laughs> next year already. <laughs> Yeah, this article, huh, did you hear my air quotes? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a posting on GitHub, and it's connected to the Faster Python project. And it talks about the performance goals for 3.12. So 3.11, and we're going to talk about this a bit next week, uh, introduced a, a new thing called an adaptive opcode specialization. And that's uh, fancy talk for doing inline replacement of certain parts of the bytecode to improve performance. So say you've got a loop that's doing math on some floats. Python 3.11 can see this and replace the generic multiply with a float-specific multiply, making your code more efficient. It only does this for repeatedly visited operations, like in a tight loop or functions that you're calling frequently. So 3.12 is planning on building uh, on this, sort of taking it to the next level. Some of the bytecode operations are going to be broken down into smaller intrinsic parts. So the simpler opcode should be able to provide more opportunity for optimization and make it easier to do just-in-time compilation type stuff. 
for our hardware geeks, this kind of echoes the idea that started happening in processors a couple decades back. The idea of taking assembly instructions were too big and unwieldy, so they got broken down into micro instructions, which Intel goes off and optimizes the CPU does this for you and you get better pipelining and all that kind of great stuff. So your compiler generates the same macro instructions, but the CPU figures out how to optimize it and give you instruction, branch prediction, all that kind of wonderful thing. So this is really the compiler, the Python compiler doing a similar concept instead of, and those basic codes are going to be broken down into uh, building blocks. And the hope is that will help with speed. The next chunk that they uh, want to work on is improving parallelism. So if you've been doing Python for a while, you've probably heard about the GIL. That's the global interpreter lock. It's a single global lock on Python for when certain kinds of operations are happening. And it's a big restriction when you're doing multi-threaded code. There have been many projects over the years to try and improve or remove the GIL. And in fact, some of the CPython competitors are based on the idea of we don't want a GIL. But it's extremely difficult to remove it and still support backwards compatibility with C extensions. So in 3.12, they're planning on moving the GIL into the sub-interpreter. So a sub-interpreter is like a tiny little copy of the interpreter that is currently only available in the C API. But by moving the GIL down there, C extensions can get their own lock. And essentially that means... The C extension will lock itself, but that won't affect other C extensions. So this isn't a complete gilectomy, but it does mean less of the system is locked. And so more parts should be able to run in parallel. So that should be an interesting step forward. They're also looking at optimizing the size of certain key data structures. This affects things like the classes, how reference counts and garbage collection is done. And by shrinking these things, the objects should result in overall shrinking of the memory footprint and as well as the ability to cache things. And you never know, but there are certain things because of the way hardware boundaries work and how much memory you read at a time and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Often in these kinds of cases, if you can shrink it below certain boundaries, it causes speed up. You're seeing a bit of this happen inside of 3.11. They've written an improvement for how exceptions work. And that improvement has shrunk. It's removed 240 bytes. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you've got that 240 bytes on every single function call, all of a sudden, some of your functions are going to be to load faster and into the CPU in a single call. And so there's all these neat little side effects by shrinking memory. So they're trying to shrink more memory. So that's most of what's covered, but there's also a list of other bits and pieces. We'll provide the links like we usually do. And there's a related post from Guido about how to take all this talk and turn it into an actual plan. So uh, if you uh, if the high-level article isn't uh, enough for you, you can go in and look at the actual details of and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. So, uh, so there's some interesting content in here. Already, I'm looking forward to 2023. Yeah. As you read through that, it just reminds me of the last two years of conversations I've had about this stuff and where all these different ideas are coming from. Lots of conversations about JIT, you know, just-in-time compilers that that I've had with a handful of people, the idea of sub-interpreters and different ways that that could be handled uh, and all these other little optimizations uh, that definitely, it's neat to have this, you know, group of people and I guess the funding, you know, with Microsoft really helping them to have truly a faster CPython project going. Well, and 
all of these things come out of peps, right? So you, you, yeah. you almost, you, you always sort of see it. It's like, oh, hey, that's an interesting idea. And then it's like six months later and like, oh, they seem to be doing it. And six months later, it's like, oh, hey, it's, yeah. in, it's in the release, right? So uh, you, you sort of see these pieces out. I, I did find an interesting sort of little extrapolation because, uh, you know, 3.9 increased speed, 3.10 increased speed, 3.11 increased speed. And if you follow the pattern, I think about three versions from now, the code will be finished before you run it. So if we just keep speeding it up, <laughs> we'll be able to read, read into the future and, uh, and, right. and spit out your answer. It'll, it'll be fantastic. Uh, that curve will flatten off eventually, but uh, we're still making progress. Yeah, truly. That's good. Time series data runs almost every technology, but building real-time apps in legacy databases can be a nightmare to manage. At Influx Data, creator of the time series data platform InfluxDB, they built their time series platform with tools so developers don't have to make wholesale changes to their product or application just to use InfluxDB. InfluxDB is optimized for developer productivity, so developers can build IoT, analytics, and cloud applications quickly and at scale. Check it out and start for free today at influxdata.com. That's I-N-F-L-U-X-D-A-T-A dot com. So my next one is what I thought was going to be a really super short article on RealPython. It actually ended up having some interesting stuff, and I did learn a couple of things inside of it. It's by um, Philip, who I mentioned last week. He has written an article titled, When Do You Use an Ellipsis in Python? If you're not familiar with it, an ellipsis is the three dots that you sometimes see in a Python script, or you might see it occasionally in things like type hints and a couple other different places. An ellipsis in, in English indicates that you're leaving something out, you know, I, I use them a lot. I, I, <laughs> I use it a lot when I text. I don't know. I, I just kind of want to like, I think I use it as like a, my own weird form of humor. <laughs> like, and you can imagine what happened next <laughs> kind of thing. But something I didn't know is that the ellipsis is also written as an actual constant, the word ellipsis <laughs> with a capital E. And if you were like to use the comparator of like is, you know, so you could say ellipsis is dot, 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 and it would return true, <laughs> which is kind of cool. I've never seen the word used inside of Python programs, so, but it was intriguing to see that. So it goes are kind of three main uses of where you might have seen this. Maybe it's the time when I began Python, which isn't that long ago, but my main way I would see a placeholder being used was the keyword of pass. And so you would see maybe as uh, you're building something structurally and you want to say, okay, I'll go ahead and name this function. I'll, I'll actually define it and I'll say define my function parentheses colon. And then maybe the next line indented in, you would see just pass. And the idea is that it would be a kind of a to-do. Like, my code will still run. It, you can even call this function, but it just does nothing. It just, you know, passes through and, and continues on. And the trend that I have been seeing is the dot, dot, dot instead. And probably the most common place I've seen it 
is when someone's sharing code, which I think is really smart, especially if it's like proprietary code inside of an organization or something like that, and they want to ask a question about it or something like that, and they could say, well, I have these functions here, this one's named this, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and so it doesn't have to include the actual body of it. And so it's a common way of implying code be here, and it the code still would run, it just doesn't do anything. And so it's kind of a nice placeholder in that way. And so I thought, okay, that was going to be it. That's all we were going to talk about in this article. But he then goes into how it's being used in type checking. And that, that can be used in a couple ways. It was like, oh yeah, I've seen it in type checking, mainly in these sort of like stubs that you would see in something like TypeShed. I don't know if you've heard of the TypeShed repo where they're adding type hints to a lot of code that are additional libraries that are out there that maybe don't have type hints inside them so that they might behave in the way that we like inside of a fancy IDE of like getting autocomplete and things like that. And I would see it where the function, you know, the main calling of it would have annotations of what the variables are that are being, you know, what what you are setting as um, parameters going in and what would be returned and you know, what the types of those things are, but the body of the function would just be dot, 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 indicating that this thing's going to happen here. And and that's a way that you can kind of define these things, which I, I think is kind of neat. And then the other way that it's used is a way that actually I've seen in other languages where they're doing this sort of specification of um, if you're defining something in type hints and it maybe could have a variable length of in the tuple and it's homogenous meaning that you know like okay you could say int comma dot 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 and that means that okay it could be one or it could be seven ints or something like that that could be sent into this function so the article goes a little deeper into that stuff and, and kind of shows it and what's interesting is i kind of looked around at other languages that seems to be a fairly common use uh in i think javascript uses something similar uh in some cases to sort of show this list of arguments potentially inside of a callable. He gives one other use that I won't go into the details of, but this is another use I've seen in a couple other languages. This is specifically in NumPy where he's talking about how it could be used to do a form of slicing, kind of tearing into some kind of matrix of things and and pulling, you know, everything up to here. Uh, and, you know, you can get into the details of the article to kind of learn a little more about that if you are interested in kind of that shorthand of that operator. But I had a kind of a question for you. Like, there, there's one other one last thing that you might have seen it, which is like an unrepl as you hit return. If you're not completed in a line, it provides a dot, dot, dot automatically. But it's just really a secondary prompt allowing you to write out like a function inside of a, a REPL type environment where you're completing something. Along with it indicating a spread of things, I've seen like in Bash where it could be used to do all the numbers in between, say one and nine, you could do one comma dot 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 comma nine, which is kind of interesting. I've seen that in some other languages. Are, are there other uses in JavaScript or is this the one I'm thinking of? The It's not It's not an operator. It's one of the more new items in JavaScript. Okay. So um, I, I still, I don't do a lot of ES6, so I don't know, uh, I don't know when they introduced it, but, I, and I've seen it kicking around. Yeah. But, but I think, far as I'm aware, I think it's just there for uh, variable number of arguments. Yeah. 
seems to be common in lots of languages that way. Yeah, yeah, the kind of thing we would use. It's one of these things that I, I, I'm I have been intrigued that over the last three four years of using Python, I I do see it more and more um, where I was just seeing pass in its place, you know, for like a function definition. And now we have a couple different <laughs> new uses in, in the case of like type hints and stuff. So, so yeah, it's a nice little article kind of diving into concept of it and, you know, when and where you would use it and growing a lot of people's familiarity with it. I always forget it's there. I still use pass. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. I really learn that it. it'll save me a, co- a keystroke, but uh, yeah, I always forget it's there. All right. So what do you got next? So this is a real Python article called Custom Python Strings Inheriting from, I'm going to call it STR for now so that we don't confuse things, versus user string. So last few episodes, I've been talking about my own courses, and this week I promise I'm not doing that. So of course, now I'm talking about a Lee Adonis article, because what else is there? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I don't know if he intended it, but this article is kind of a little sneaky. Uh, Nominally, it's about writing custom features for strings and how you can override them, but it kind of ends up being an accidental tutorial on object-oriented ideas in Python, how it all fits together. So it starts out showing you how to write your own string class that has a word count method. So you inherit from the str object and add a new method that counts words on the internal string. So far, so good. It's really add a method. It's not a big challenge. The next step is to attempt to write a new string class that automatically turns whatever you constructed it with into lowercase. And he walks you through what you might think is the first logical approach, and you overload dunder init like you usually do with classes, and then it fails. And uh, you can't do this. It results in an exception. And that's because in Python, strings are immutable. So when you try to call super dunder init on your class, it blows up. Uh, Yeah. So... In order to get around this, you have to do something a little deeper, which isn't like isn't part of the usual intro to Python object oriented stuff, and that's to use Dunder new. So to build this lower string class, you overload Dunder new instead of Dunder init. And this is what I mean by sneaky. So you just learned about a little more about how objects are really constructed in Python. And every once in a while, I come across somebody who gets all cranky with me when I call Dunder init a constructor. Because Python's not my first coding language, my vocabulary from other languages tends to leak through once in a while. And these finicky people are technically correct, which is the best kind of correct, a Futurama shout out. <laughs> and how they're technically correct is that Dunder new is actually the constructor, whereas Dunder init, it's where you initialize your variables. Yeah. So other object-oriented languages don't make this distinction, and hence why old people like me say constructor. So minutes ago, I mentioned the title, Inheriting from STR versus User String. And if you remember back that far, you might be able to guess where this goes next. So Python has another way of building string-like things. That's the User String object, which can be found in the Collections module. User String is a wrapper class to the STR data type. And as such, you can build on top of it by overloading the Dunder init method, kind of like what you'd expect. So essentially, you can do that first attempt. You can do that if you're inheriting from user string instead of from STR. The rest of the article walks you through how to modify a whack of Dunder methods in order to make a string class that behaves as if it were mutable. So again, sneaky. So not only do you have a better understanding of all these string-like things, but by the time you're done, you've got an idea of how constructors really work and some of the mutation methods like dunder set item and dunder delete item. 
So it's, uh, as often I find with Leo Donis' stuff, it's like, oh, this should be a simple article. And then you get into the loads of the depth of how things work. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> and there's some really good insight in here. So uh, yay, Leo Donis. Yeah, I, I dig it. I like the example where, yeah, try it out. It'll blow up in your face. You know, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, oh, what a great way to find out. <laughs> yeah, and I've been actually learning. He's been writing a lot about this sort of stuff lately. And Darren Jones has been turning them into video courses. And so I've been kind of diving pretty deep into, uh, you know, multiple constructors, quote unquote, things like that. And you know, kind of learning that real big difference between new and, and it, um, which isn't typically covered in in object oriented python like kind of like the level one kind of stuff appropriately right like it's it's not right. necessary you, you're needing generally if you're starting to touch dunder new you're 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 starting to muck about you're getting into like metaprogramming land or close to it right so uh yeah yeah it's um yeah it's an interesting conceptual thing uh, like i said you don't see it in a lot of languages so it's uh it's 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 one of the weird little corner cases of uh of, of python yeah, and, and why you need to be technically accurate, yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> cool. All right. That takes us into our discussion this week and why we were laughing at the very beginning of the program uh, is it's a Hacker News thread, and it starts with just aging programmer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we we're like, oh, no. <laughs> and so Steve Perkins writes more of a comment than a question. First sentence, I'm approaching 50 period. <laughs> and we both kind of laughed. And we, so uh, the two Christophers here are are both, uh, let's say, older than Steve. So <laughs> yeah, I was reading through this. It was very interesting. He's talking a lot about when he thinks he's going to retire or even having the option to retire. The next couple of years look like they might not be fun, which is kind of interesting. He's talked about getting different roles and again it's really more of just like hey this is happening to me and i've been thinking about it and then man it's a big thread <laughs> it really blew up and and went in multiple directions and so i thought we could talk about a, a handful of different things uh, you know some of it being hiring um, or being the programmer and trying to find uh, a job as somebody who's a little bit older hoping that you know <laughs> hr isn't committing atrocities across the board and only hiring people that they think uh, you know can survive the the gauntlet of programming or what have you but it, it ended up bringing up a lot of different thoughts as i kind of went through it and looked at it uh, sort of subtopics and you said you had a couple so maybe we could start with yours and i, I got my big list sure i one of the things that i kind of felt as i was reading through it is there is you know, at risk of going into all kids these days, <laughs> all right? There definitely is a generational difference in approach, right? Um, and there was this great phrase that I saw uh, in it, which was, "They're inventing things faster than I can acquire them." Yeah, and and this is what I mean by a generational thing. When I started out, there was really two programming languages that were taken seriously, right? There's more versions of Python than that. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, yeah. uh, and I see it as well, not just in that, but there's also, uh, it was very, very difficult to learn anything about computers without 
understanding the hardware when I started out because you were operating at that level. Yeah. And when I talk to younger folks, it always surprises me um, that they've just abstracted it away. And part of me, because you know, it's the way I was, the way I learned. I'm sure the first people who said, "Yeah, you know what? We don't need to teach Latin in school." All went, "Wait, well, but but that's how you teach language, right?" <laughs> so 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 I'm not kind of. On, Kind of on both sides of it, right? Like, I think there's value in understanding those things. And I think there's reasons why uh, some programs blow up because, hey, you ran out of memory and that used to be a thing you had to think about all the time. Right. So I think there's definitely, uh, it, it's not just age. I think the what we've been exposed to and what your first programming language is and, and those things all influence you over your career. So so that, that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, some of it has changed over time as well. Like I'm just as bad as everybody else when it comes to copy and paste from Stack Overflow and Google Answers and all the rest of it. None of that existed when I started. Right. And I suspect that part of my brain that used to have to figure it out for myself has atrophied because, right? So, so some of that, although there's a generational change, some of that, those of us who've been through it have changed with it as well because I'm not, nobody's saying, you know, I need 300 pounds of paperback books on my bookshelf to look this stuff up. Of course, Google it, right? Like that's just the answer. So yeah, definitely. You know, I have a, a weird path. I've it probably ad nauseum talked about it down here, but you know, I, I started very early programming and basic and, and so forth at home and, and, and played around and then went to college and did Fortran and C for a little bit and then really disappeared completely. And so coming back into programming, because I always was very interested in it, and then diving really deep into lots of languages all at once. So I feel like I kind of jumped in the pool uh, late in life. Now, I am a person who is very interested in, in constantly learning, but I don't think it matters what age you are as far as that sort of eagerness to learn, which I think is like probably the biggest factor that I always kind of emphasize on here. And, and definitely, I'll talk about it again Next week with uh, Pablo, we actually kind of went into a nice additional conversation after we talked about memory, you know, kind of seeing that inside a, a team or a potential em employee, this idea of eagerness to learn, because it is going to be constantly changing. And that is something that I think a lot of people who, you know, look at somebody who's an older programmer and think, oh, well, they're going to be set in their ways. And I, I think that really just depends on the person, you know, and, and if they've lasted this long in the industry potentially they're really interested in change and have learned lots of ways of going about it, but it totally depends on the person. Yeah, well, it's also a balancing act as well, right? So you would hope that with experience, you know when to use the new shiny thing and when not to. Right. And so there's that, that, that there's always that conversation of, of you know which side of that am I on right am I am, am I saying we should use this tool because it actually is a good choice and we're going to get bit if we do something else or am I saying that because I don't want to learn and it's always there's almost a psychology aspect to it that's hard to suss out right <laughs> yeah and then there's these you know interesting sort of junior senior dev kind of things in there and. You know, all these kids today, they just need to slow down, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll remove the expletives. <laughs> <laughs> Frantically copying and pasting and, and, you know, watching them Google stuff and, you know, pasting stuff in and then just like, oh, wow, that didn't work. And then they don't completely remove it and then, you know, go on and so forth. And I think of that when I think of potentially these additional new tools beyond the internet that kind of came in between, right, of 
what is an older program going to be doing, but like looking at code that's been auto-generated and does this actually compile and run and you know, or whatever, which is kind of intriguing to, to think about. Like, I, I think that's always a problem and, you know, it kind of depends on where people are coming from. And one of the other things that they talked about quite a bit is the idea of moving from job to job and potentially building those connections and building a network, which is definitely a thing that I, I think I've even mentioned it on here about how that's really worked well for me. Other people would just mention just my ability to to learn how to do stuff to a different team. And then potentially I was being cherry picked, you know, and moved over to something else, you know, some other interesting projects. But often, you know, you get into this new job and we have like talked about it a ton on here also about preparing for that interview and, and potentially having an interview exam. And there's a, a few articles that I thought were interesting from like 2007. There's like a, a on coding horror it's a jeff atwood site where why is FizzBuzz a simple sort of program presented in a coding interview because a lot of people coming out of school potentially couldn't actually write it you know they couldn't piece together simple code which i thought was interesting and and it, you had mentioned that well that might be just them going through the entire stack of potential candidates and not really looking at the resume <laughs> with like a, a, a bit keener of an eye. You know, when I've been on the hiring side of the table, I've, I've tried just about everything. I've done some coding test type things. I have found that people who did really well on the coding test did miserably in the, in the interview uh, and yeah. weren't necessarily good programmers if I happened to hire them. So I kind of backed away from coding tests. I would occasionally do the whiteboard thing. I was never a big fan of it. But I'm fully understand that uh, coding on a whiteboard isn't anything like coding on a machine. Right. I find I tend to personally try to go to the let's have a design conversation. Let's talk about a problem I'm actually trying to solve right now. Sure. And let's see <laughs> how, how do you think whether or not yeah because this is what we'll be doing if I hire you. We're going to be talking like this. Right. And once in a while, that devolves into, oh, okay. So I've, I have run into sort of the fizz buzz problem with things like interns and things like that. Yeah. And But, but the, the bar there is completely different. Usually there, you're looking to make sure that they're not a negative contributor. And, uh, <laughs> right? And, and, you damage my code if I hire you. <laughs> or, or just eat up everybody's time or whatever, right? The bar is completely sure. different with interns and co-ops than it is with, say, I'm trying to hire, you know, a senior developer or whatever, right? Okay. But the other aspect of this too, it, to, you know, to bring it back to the age piece is, uh, you know, we, this is a really weird industry, right? Like we, yeah, we think weird. of it as a norm because we're all in it and it's huge and it runs the world, but it's a bubble, right? Like most of my wife's extended family are in construction and at my age, they're going, I can't do this anymore. My body hurts. Right. And, you know, you look at the the older guy, uh, you know, your Walmart greeters or your grocery store baggers, right? A and most of us are never going to, like, except for the fact of, you know, res res repetive stress <laughs> injuries. Right, we potentially, can keep yeah. working, right? Like, yeah, yeah. 
one of the things I had, I had a cousin talk to me as he was approaching retirement. One of the things he just kept doing was he just kept increasing the price of his contracts. And he's like, when no one will pay, I'll stop working. Uh, and uh, this is, to me, this is a brilliant mechanism, right? And and this is something that feels can, like a lawyer. Yeah. yeah like you just, yeah. and what'll happen is if you, if you're at the point where you could retire and you're just trying to keep going and do something to keep your brain going, you turn the price up and people keep saying yes and you won't get as much work, but that's fine because you're trying to ease it off anyways. And it, the day you finally stop is the day no one will give you a contract anymore. But uh, yeah, but the ageism thing definitely is an issue. I've seen it in the industry. Yeah, It, it is thought of as a young person's game. But you know, a lot of the things that were talked about in the forum and a lot of the things that you know, we've been talking about with the interviews, uh, quite frankly, it applies to almost everybody too, right? Like uh, that there's... How many certificates did you get? Well, uh, for some programmers, that helps them get the job. And for other programmers, they're like, why would I want to do that, right? And, right? and for some companies, you can't get in the door without them. And in other companies, it's like, well, why would I care, right? So, right. Uh, right. I've, I've, heard, I've heard the heat on either side of that for the certification stuff. And the other part I thought was interesting was like, you know, maybe they should look at what they've been doing outside. Like, do they have a portfolio work? And I, there was a really interesting one where they were talking about, yeah, like, you know, have they done open source contributions? And yeah, you see, I hate that. No other industry does that. Right. <laughs> but they, then they said, well, actually, I think that counts against you in certain things. And I was like, ah, right. Because that means that, that you know, I don't know what it means exactly what they, they're thinking behind it, but potentially that you do have other options or that you're going to be working outside or... Yeah. Or, or what have you. Yeah. Like, I love to look at somebody's Git, GitHub profile because it means I can actually see what their real code is like. And uh, and if you're uh, starting out in the industry and you don't have experience, uh, that's great. Uh, if you uh, truly believe in contributing and you get to do that, that's fantastic. But we are no no other industry. No, the bricklayers don't come along and go. So, uh, how much bricklaying do you do in your spare time? Uh, it's yeah, totally. <laughs> like, it, like I, I yeah. understand the well, desire. I built, I built a barbecue. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand the desire of the question because it it implies that you're passionate about it. But uh, yeah. uh, people need to have lives as well. Yeah, I, I I wonder about the the influence of the startup culture. The yeah, you should be giving how many uh, hundreds of hours or whatever. And I just, I think I'm seeing that dissolve a little bit potentially, but like at least it's being exposed in some of the circles that, that I, I watch, you know, I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> maintaining a look at, and maybe the pandemic is part of it. Like people kind of realize like, wow, I'm burning myself out, you know, by overachieving. Well, I, I honestly think it goes far deeper than that and and uh, at risk of very much sounding like an old man. Uh, the next generation down seems to have a better idea of what this looks like. Um, yeah. Millennials yeah. seem to have, have a far stronger grasp on work-life balance and uh, than, say, Gen X ever did. <laughs> um, so... Which is funny because we're supposed to be the slacker generation. So you'd think it would have been yeah. us, but <laughs> you know, it's what it yeah, is. Too funny. All right. Well, we'll leave that as an open uh, thing because we're old. Um, <laughs> we can always come back and talk about it. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It dives further into a topic that we touch on this week. It's titled 
providing multiple constructors in your Python classes. The course is based on a real Python article by Leodanus Pozo Ramos. And in the video course, instructor Darren Jones shows you how to use optional arguments in type checking to simulate multiple constructors, how to write multiple constructors using the built-in class method decorator, and how to overload your class constructors using the single dispatch method decorator. You also get a peek under the hood at how Python internally constructs instances of a regular class and how some standard library classes provide multiple constructors. Having the tools to provide multiple constructors will help you write flexible classes that you can adapt to changing needs. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find the link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com. Let's dive into projects. What'd you bring this week? Sure. So this one, I was looking at a tool called Diftastic. Technically not a Python tool, but a tool that supports Python. So what Diftastic does is give you diff information on code with the added benefit that it actually understands the code. Oh, nice. It understands over 30 different programming languages, and Python's one of them. And uh, you end up with far more useful diffs because it's actually diffing code trees rather than just say line by line. So I, I just finished recording the course of the new features in Python 3.11. And part of that course shows off a new concept inside of AsyncIO called a task group. And in order to explain how that works, I had some 3.10 code and some 3.11 code that uses the new feature. And as you would guess, those two pieces of code are fairly similar. But you, all the code does is create some parallel routines and how they're spawned is slightly different. So when I run a diff on those scripts, if a regular diff would basically just say, hey, all these lines have changed. Yeah. What Diftastic says is, oh, you seem to be using the same factory here, and this part and this part are you know, different base objects, but the, the, the function that you're passing into the factory is the same. So you're seeing things far more specific to how Python actually works. Nice signposting there, as opposed to just different... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, like if you think of a like a simple use case, which would be say like an if statement. Say you've got an if statement, and then you go back into your code, and you uh, you need to make it multi-line. You got to add another clause. So, an old diff would highlight both of those lines because you've added like a continuation character and you've added a new clause. Diftastic would actually say, "Oh, that this line is the same, and just you've added the clause and highlight the difference character rather than saying the lines are different." So, so there's uh, so some interesting kind of highlighting to this and a different way of kind of looking at your code. It automatically detects what language you're processing, but it also supports a dash dash language flag in case whatever you're feeding it isn't it's not happy with. And it can compare files as well as directories, just like regular diff, and has some fine-grained arguments for highlighting uh, how you change the highlighting and how it incorporates so that if you're plugging it into, say, an IDE or into Git or one of those other tools that integrate with diff, it supports doing that and you can change how things are highlighted. The core coder is a gentleman named Wilford Hughes, but there's like 230 contributors. So there's a lot of activity going on. Wow. Uh, yeah. And they were updating even just a couple weeks ago. So uh, yeah, so if this is, uh, th th this might help you find out what's changed in your code or be able to look at your code in a different way from before. So another little useful tool for your toolkit. 
Nice. I guess following the theme, mine is a GitHub project called Refurb. Refurbish and modernize your Python code bases. It's by, well, the GitHub name is Dosisod, D-O-S-I-S-O-D. Nice palindrome there. His name's Luke. And it's kind of a cross of things. It's not as elaborate a refactoring tool as something like Sorcery. And it's not really purely a linter. It's a tool, sort again, they say, for refurbishing and modernizing Python code bases. So the idea is, what are things that have changed in the language to make it more elegant and, and work smoother and more modernly, if you will? Things like using Pathlib is one of them. Even just the, the ability to do, instead of having like a context manager of with open as multiple lines of stuff, to, to read a text file, you could use path, calling path, and then read text, which is, again, optimizing a lot of things. Looking at and and the or statements, uh, how you might have, if you have like a chain of those, like ways that you could probably do that with a sort of a, a comparator, simplifying. There's like all kinds of little ones that are in it, and they keep adding them. So again, it's not 100% the same as like, refactoring, but partly because it has uh, these nice CLI flags that have the ability to kind of show you why they're different. One of the first examples they they show is maybe you're coming from a different language where you have to (laughs) assign a variable type and tell it what the type is. And so like you type something like name equals str, and then in parentheses, you put the string bob quotation marks around it. Well, you don't need to do that in Python. You don't need to cast a variable during assignment. That's not like something that needs to happen, but a beginner might have had to do that in a different language and, and set up what, you know, what this variable is going to be. You just, in Python, you just put name equals and then, you know, quotation marks Bob, and that makes it a string because you've basically assigned it to a literal string. And the same with like a number, like a, an integer or a float or what have you. And so like it would make a suggestion there and then explain why that's happening. Lots of, it has an, also a flag for ignoring certain types of errors. It's got a really nice CLI to it. And you can also set it up in a pre-commit way, the way you might do for black or iSort, which is another one that got mentioned this week again. We've talked about it ourselves on E100 and then also episode 97. I talked to Adam Johnson about iSort. So lots of these little tools that you could kind of put in your tool belt to kind of say, well, am I doing this properly? Am I doing this in, in, in kind of a smart way, uh, in a Pythonic kind of way? So yeah, I thought it was kind of a neat neat uh, little package called Refurb. Yeah, so there's there's interesting stuff in there. When uh, If I remember correctly, when I found it, it was uh, through a uh, Hacker News conversation talking about it. Oh, okay. The opinion in the discussion part seemed to be mixed as to whether or not you should use it in a CI/CD sort of uh, scenario. And part of that was because some of the suggestions are the kinds of things that are opinionated. Very opinionated it is, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so that, so, and this is what, it, you know, as soon as the internet's involved, someone's going to speak up, but that's not how you do that. <laughs> and uh, so right. uh, the, the examples I saw, saw were great and I could see it as a uh, kind of the same way I use a linter uh, where I'm sort of, you know, okay. Very linter like. Here, yeah. okay, do it as part of my process. I don't know whether personally I'd put it in the CICD, but, or if I was working with like an older code base or something. Right. That's something it does, right? Because it runs in 310. 
yeah. um, only, but it will look at code that's been written in 3.6 and up. Uh, yes, which, uh, and if you're wondering why is it 3.10, uh, this is one of the, he, he, the, the underlying implementation uses the new match mechanism. Uh, okay. So there's another reason to go looking at this. If you, if you want to see a real use case for uh, that new match feature, uh, this refurb, refurbs uh, a code base that you can uh, take a look at there for this. Yeah. I think it would have been handy to have a tool like this, particularly as you were saying, going Python 2.7 to Python 3, because sure. you know, it highlights exactly, the, oh, hey, we've got a better way of doing that now, right? So, yeah. so if you're touching older code bases or if you're trying to you know, uh, clean something up or you know, if you're trying to drop, you've got something that's been kicking around since 3.1 and you're trying to drop your 3.2, 3.3, 3.6 support because all of that's dead now, you know, running a tool like this could also result in removal of certain kinds of imports and things as well as you get rid of the uh, the older stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for bringing all these PyCoders articles and projects, Christopher. Always fun. Talk to you soon. And don't forget, InfluxDB time series platform is available in the cloud, on-premises or locally. Get started for free today at influxdata.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.